Lately, a trend has started to gain momentum whereby people, knowing the power of parting words, elect to write for themselves autobituaries, you know, things that will be published upon death. Some have even gone so far as to refer to these autobituaries as being a sort of final selfie, that last chance to put out the final version of yourself you'd most like people to remember you by. Isn't it true that of all forms of human interaction and communication, that parting words, final words, contain a certain level of gravity, a a greater sense of weight than almost any others upon death. And that single moment, that last moment, that final moment before death, parting words, afford a person a final opportunity to impart maybe a transcendent thought, communicate an important message, leave behind a lasting impression, even voice goodbyes and well wishes to loved ones, or parting words afford people, as in the case of Al Patterson, an opportunity to make a few timely confessions. Let me read for you his autobituary. He writes, I was born in Salt Lake City, March 27th, 1953. I died of throat cancer on July 10th, 2012. Now that I have gone to my reward, I have confessions and things I should now say. As it turns out, I am the guy who stole the safe from the Motor View drive-in back in June 1971. I could have left that unsaid, but I wanted to get it off my chest. Also, I really am not a PhD. What happened that day is I went to pay off my student loan at the University of Utah The girl working there put my receipt in the wrong stack, and two weeks later, a PhD diploma came in the mail. I didn't even graduate. I only had about three years of college credit. In fact, I never even learned what the words, the letters PhD even stood for. For all of the electronic engineers I've worked with, I'm sorry. (laughs) But you have to admit, my designs always worked well. We're well engineered, and at least I made you laugh at work. To Disneyland, you can now throw away that banned for life file you have on me. I'm not a problem anymore. And SeaWorld San Diego, too, if you happen to be reading this. I bring this up because while not an autobituary per se, we do have contained in the remaining verses of Acts chapter 20, Paul's parting words to some people he deeply cared about, a group of Ephesian elders. Since parting words are naturally powerful and consequential, the things that Paul will share are not only inspiring, but worthy of our attention and examination. Before we get to them, let's begin by establishing the motion of the text. We're in Paul's third missionary journey, beginning with verse 13, Acts chapter 20. We're told that then we, this would be Luke seven other men went ahead to the ship and sailed from Troas to Asos. They're intending to take Paul on board. Luke explains, for he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. So Luke, seven other men, leave Troas. They sail to Asos. The apostle Paul, wanting to spend some time alone with the Lord, leaves Troas on foot, heading to Asos. It's where they pick him up. So he met us at Asos, continuing on, 
We took him on board and we came to Mytilene. We sailed from there and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregillium. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now they're working their way from Troas down the western coast, north to south, of what's presently known as Turkey, present-day Turkey. This crew of nine men worked their way through a series of port cities, Asos, Mytilene, Chios, Samos, and Tregillium. They finally arrived from Tregillium to Miletus. We've put up a map, enabled you to kind of contextualize it and see how they're working their way from north to south. Luke tells us that Paul does something very intentional He leaves out Ephesus. He avoids passing through Ephesus. For we're told, he was in a hurry to be at Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. That said, realizing that this may be his last opportunity to spend quality time with these men he deeply cared about, realizing he might never pass through this area ever again, that he might never have a chance to speak to to interact with men from Ephesus. We're told that he calls for the elders of the church to make a 30-mile hike to meet with him in Miletus. So he avoids going into Ephesus, but he sends for the Ephesian elders to meet him in Miletus. Now, don't forget that the apostle Paul had spent three years with these men. When Paul had arrived in Ephesus, Originally, there was no believers, no church, no work. But by the time he left, there was an established church impacting a region. Think of these men that traveled the 30 miles to connect with Paul as being his sort of spiritual sons. Paul had been there when these men had been born into the spirit. Paul had been faithful to help them grow from babies in the faith and to men he had even entrusted to lead the church he had started. And it's Paul's love for and relationship with these men that will make his parting words so personal. Now, before we dive into the particulars of what Paul has to say, I want to introduce a related concept I believe will make our text all the more relevant and applicable to men who love Jesus and women who love men that do. And this is important because oftentimes when examining this particular text, it's Paul, the ultimate preacher, sharing his heart, giving counsel and advice to another group of preachers. This text is used in a lot of senses to be kind of a pastor's conference fodder material from a pastor speaking to other pastors, and yet in our situation, that's not exactly relevant or applicable. But there's an idea, something that exists within Scripture, another concept Paul introduces, I think that makes his words very applicable to men. Let me explain. In addressing the spiritual role of men within the family unit, Paul would write in Ephesians 5 verses 23 that the husband 
is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. While Paul is speaking, obviously, to a hierarchy of authority as it pertains to marital roles between men and women, Paul is also emphasizing the gravity of responsibility that a man has over his wife and therefore his family. Understand the connection, the correlation that Paul is making. He's explaining that in much the same way that a pastor has been called to be Christ's instrument and in caring for the church, men are called to be Christ's instrument and in caring for the family. Though Paul is obviously speaking here in our text to a group of pastors. Because of the parallel between pastors shepherding the church and men called to shepherd their family, the advice that he gives to these men are just as applicable to us, men who are seeking to pastor their own families. Now, we're going to read 20 verses. We're going to read the entirety of Paul's sermon here to these Ephesian elders. We're going to let the words kind of speak for themselves before we dive into kind of an examination of them. Beginning with verse 18, we're told that when they had come, Paul said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed now, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember 
the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down, he prayed with them all, then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Now, if you were to outline this particular sermon, it's a very powerful sermon, it's a weighty sermon, it's, it's, you, you really get the heart of the apostle. But if you were to divide it into three sections, you do it as such. First, you have Paul's example, followed by Paul's edict, concluding with Paul's exhortation, a three-point sermon. Now, for our purposes this morning, instead of approaching the outline, these three points in order, we're going to kind of approach the sermon as if we were eating an Oreo. You know, you take the top off and the bottom off, you eat the cream in the middle before you get to the crackers. First, notice Paul's edict to these men in verses 28 and 31. It's his second point, but for our purposes, the first, because it reveals to us his fundamental purpose behind the message to begin with. Behind sending for these men to come, his point is revealed. Look at it, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Knowing that his departure was nigh, Paul wanted these men to be prepared for what he knows would soon follow. Look at it. He, he says, for I know this. He's confident. He's sure that after my departure, the church there in Ephesus would come under attack. Paul cites two different sources for the coming blitz. He's warning them concerning. He says that, that there would be an attack from outside. He says, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You see, Paul recognized that there would be men who would attempt to prey on the church by entering the ranks of the church, only possessing, though, evil intentions and ulterior motives. These men have not the health of the church in mind, but rather the destruction of the church to emphasize the serious ramifications of allowing these men their gain, Paul calls them, he refers to them using a very strong term. He calls them savage wolves. He does this because it's within the very nature of the wolf to devour the flock. A wolf does not have the best interests of the flock in mind. He only has his own interests Paul also says, aside from attacks coming from outside, that there would be attacks from within. He says, from among yourselves, men will rise up. Within this very group, men would rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. 
Paul also recognized that there would be men from within the ranks of the church who, while maybe beginning and starting strong and genuine and sincere over time, their intentions would turn evil and their motivations self-serving. He points out that desiring to draw away the disciples, desiring for these men to, to follow him, they would speak perverse things. This phrase, perverse things, literally means that they would speak distorted truths. You see, what makes these type of men so dangerous is that there's a reason they came to a position of prominence to start with. They were men where, where people recognized God's call on their lives. They were men where people recognized God's hand and handiwork in their lives. These men had a platform. They were proven. They were trustworthy. Their words were accepted as truth, and yet, because their motivations turn, because something happens, something triggers inside of them where they're wanting to develop their own following, they begin to distort truth. They're dangerous because once trusted, they twist the truth for their own personal gain. Men, as pastors, pastors of our own families, we need to understand, first and foremost, that attacks on our families, our kids and our wives, our church, these things are inevitable. There is a very real enemy in this world. We know him as the devil. And if you remove the D, his intentions become clear. They're evil. His purpose is to steal to kill and destroy the lives of the people you love. And it's for the purpose of dealing with these type of threats that Paul says the Holy Spirit has made men overseers to shepherd the church of God. You're an overseer because there's attacks. You're to protect the church, and because this is your role, and because these type of influences, safeguarding those we love from them, is of such vital importance that Paul gives us, as shepherds, three specific commands. He says there's an enemy, and God has made you an overseer to protect those in whom you love from the enemy. So three things to keep in mind. First, Paul says, Take heed to yourselves. Paul understood that in order for a man to effectively care for the needs of anyone else, he must take care of himself. Now that's not to say that we're not to prefer the needs of others above ourselves, but we're talking about the essentials. In a very practical sense, Paul understood that if the shepherd of the flock is weak, if he's tired, if he's burned out, distracted, malnourished, if he's let his guard down, if he's not 100% operating at capacity, the sheep entrusted to his care will naturally be susceptible to harm. As a shepherd, you need to make sure that you're putting on the whole armor of God. 
You need to make sure as the defender of your flock that you are healthy, that you're strong, that you're vibrant. Are you spending time, pastor, and the word on your own? Are you spending time seeking to be nourished from the, the, from the blessings of God's word on your own? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you taking your needs to other men you trust? Are you making sure you're fit to the task? That's what Paul's saying. Take heed to yourself so that you can then, secondly, take heed to all the flock. As a shepherd, it is the job of the pastor to care for the needs of the flock by fulfilling three basic responsibilities. Obviously, we understand that as a shepherd, your job is to protect from the attack of outside enemies, wolves. But your job moves beyond that, shepherd, pastor, man. Your job and the life of your family is to also feed the flock and lead the flock. Please understand, because it's in the DNA of sheep to follow, if you fail to lead your family, if you fail to protect your family, if you fail to feed your family, if you fail in the role of shepherd, your sheep will find someone who will care for them, someone who will lead them, someone who will, who will tend to their needs. Sheep need a leader. You've been called to be that leader, but, but friend, if you negate to fill the responsibility, someone else will. And oftentimes, they don't have the same intentions that you do. Therefore, Paul says, watch. The Greek word watch, gregario, it means to watch by giving strict attention to. Now, it makes sense, right, that as a shepherd, we're to watch out, to care, to, to, to shoulder the responsibility of protecting what is precious to the Lord. And this edict... In context, we understand that Paul is commanding these men to watch out for the simmering of inward malcontents. We understand that Paul is saying that we should watch out for the sly approach of outside wolves. But you know, we're also to watch out as shepherds for one another. It's what makes what we do every month with our Band of Brothers ministry, so vital. It's not just a time where we get together and we shoot guns, but it's a time where we get together as men, seeking to take this role with responsibility, where we pray for one another, where we watch out for one another, where we have each other's backs. And you know, there's a truth that if you have someone's back, if you truly do, you also have let's just say the responsibility to kick a backside if necessary. What we're dealing with, men, is of such importance. The stakes are so great that we're to watch out for one another. And when we see one another messing up, falling short, being derelict, then it requires strong words because we care, not just about our job as men, about one another, but about our families. Now, before we move on, notice from our text 
that the Holy Spirit has made these men overseers. That's very important. This phrase, has made, is tithemi, T-I-T-H-E-M-I. It means to set aside or to ordain. Men, the role of pastoring your family is a God-given position that you cannot skirt. It's a name tag you wear. You are dad, you are husband. It is what you are. In the end, I hope you understand that you will either prove faithful to the task or derelict in your duty, but you'll never be able to escape the responsibility. Your dad, you just have to make a decision, do you want to be a good one or a lousy one? But no one can take that position. Furthermore, because the hiring process of the shepherd is the Lord's, the Holy Spirit ordains men. The congregation or your family, I hope you realize it belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. Neither the church nor the family is the property of the pastor. Your family, your wife, your kids, they're not yours. You don't own them. This church, I don't own the church. Understand, we are nothing more than a man that God has ordained to, quote, shepherd the church of God, which God has purchased with his own blood. Men never, ever, ever forget that those little munchkins running around your house They're God's kids that you've been given the task of raising, that you've been given the task of sharing the name of God, that being Father. They're not your kids, they're they're God's kids. That ups the ante. And beyond that, that woman you said, I do, till death do you part, she might be your wife, but never forget She's God's daughter that you've been entrusted to love. You're to be a steward, not a taskmaster. So we have here, you know, Paul's edict. Now we also, secondly, we'll look at Paul's example. Beginning with verse 18, he says, You know, it's a strong word, and what manner I have always lived among you. In order to help these men, these men that he loves, fulfill God's calling on their lives, notice that Paul does something helpful. He's like, let me give you an example of a shepherd, of a man, of someone fulfilling the calling of his ordination. And to do this, he points to himself. He says, look at me, model me, I am your example. And as the example he points to three things in his own life that they should emulate. First, Paul says that he served Jesus by faithfully fulfilling his ministry. Emulate me by serving Jesus. He says, verses 19 through 21, that serving the Lord with all humility, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, first and foremost, 
How does Paul begin this? He says that he served the Lord. Don't miss the subtlety there. In much the same way as the shepherd relates to the sheep, the sheep are also to relate to the shepherd. Let me explain. Well, the sheep are not the property of the shepherd. The sheep are God's. And the shepherd has been entrusted to their care. He's been hired. The shepherd is not the property of the flock. The shepherd doesn't own the flock, but the flock doesn't own the shepherd. Both, according to the way Paul structures it, belong to God. Keep in mind, Paul's calling was not to be the servant of the people, but rather a servant to the people. You see, to be an effective shepherd, Paul is telling these men that their service to the people entrusted to their care should always be motivated as being a service for the Lord. I hope you understand that. That the motivation for your patience with your kids should not be your kids, but should be the fact that you're being patient with them as a service to Jesus. It's, it's the essence of our motivation. We serve Jesus by serving our wife and kids. I serve Jesus by serving you. I, you're not mine and I'm not yours. God has called me, ordained me, placed me to serve you by serving him. And notice what Paul's, as a shepherd, what Paul's principal service to them were. He says, quote, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it and taught you publicly. As a shepherd, Paul's primary ministry to the Ephesian church and the ministry these men were now entrusted to continue was the continual, quote, testifying of repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And how did he do it? He continues. He's, he's so confident in his faithfulness to this aim and his service to Jesus in this way that he declares in verses 26 and 27, I testify, put me on the stand, to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul is saying that because he has been faithful to teach these men the whole counsel of God, Scripture, the truth, his conscience was clean. It was clear. If these men failed... If they turned away, Paul's saying, I'm, I'm not responsible. I've done my job. I've done all I could. I've taught you the word, the whole counsel, all of it, the truth, the hard-hitting truth. What you do with it, that's on you, not me. I have fulfilled my job as shepherd by giving you the word. Not only does this whole concept here emphasize how important Paul saw the teaching of the word as being a responsibility of the elders, it's also clear, at least from Paul's perspective, how vital the teaching of God's word is for the life of the church. Paul's saying of all of the things as a shepherd I'm called to do, 
I have kept nothing back, but I have taught you the whole counsel of God. I've taught you the truth. Men, I hope you know the exact same thing is true when it comes to the health and the vitality of your family. You're to teach them the Bible. May I ask, pastor, are you being faithful to serve Jesus by serving those entrusted to your care, your children and your wife? Are you a servant to them as a servant to Jesus? And beyond praying or playing or providing, may I ask, when was the last time that you taught your children the word of God? When was the last time you did a devotion with your children? That you read them from scripture, a bedtime story? That you acted out stories from scripture, helping them understand? Are you leading your family in this way as being the spiritual head of your home, the priest? Though your children will eventually carve out their own path, and your wife, as, as we know, is always free to make her own decisions. Never forget, as a father and a husband, you will stand before God to give an account concerning the job he ordained you for. Are you teaching your family God's word? I encourage you to bring your family to church. It's an important thing to be able to sit with your wife and, and study scripture together, to be able to trust that your kids are being taught scripture at their level, the importance of a healthy children's ministry. But understand what happens on Sunday should be a supplement to what you're already doing Monday through Saturday. Are you fulfilling that responsibility? Understand, when you stand before God and give an account, no matter what may happen, Will you be able to echo the words of Paul, I hope I am, that you are innocent of their blood for you did not shun to declare to them the whole counsel of God. Notice that in addition to serving Jesus, Paul followed Jesus no matter where that led. Verses 22 through 24, he says, See, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Spirit testifies. And every city that chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and finish the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In order to fill your role as shepherd, in addition to serving Jesus, an elder must be willing to follow Jesus no matter where that road might lead, even if it leads into a storm. And pointing to himself, Paul, he affirms that while the Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me, I'm bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Do you kind of catch the dichotomy there? The heads and tails of the situation? I mean, on one aspect, Paul is saying, the Spirit is leading me to Jerusalem. I've been called to go to Jerusalem. He's taking me to Jerusalem. But on the flip side, he's also letting me know what's going to happen in Jerusalem, that chains and tribulations await me. Now, the idea here is not that the Holy Spirit was revealing that chains and tribulations awaited him in order to deter him from going, because the same Spirit revealing that is also leading him. The entire purpose of this revelation is just to make sure Paul knows 
that all the expectations are equalized, that he's aware of what's going to happen. And you know, I take really great comfort in this, like knowing that yes, I'm called to follow Jesus, but Jesus is candid what that means. Like in Paul's case, the Lord's honest, what he should expect when he arrives in Jerusalem. But I hope you realize that Jesus has also been candid to us as men and shepherds, as pastors, that following Jesus does not lead a man down the easiest path. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus is being honest to you and I that following him doesn't always result in the easiest life. And yet for Paul, pointing to himself as an example, he says that in the face of all of this, that chains and tribulations await him, none of these things move me. No matter what the cost, Paul would not be deterred from following Jesus. No matter what, he remained faithful to follow the leader. Never forget that people inherently respect bravery while shunning cowardice. No one follows a coward, but men will follow and even lay down their lives for a man that they've determined to be brave and strong and undeterred. Men will follow a brave leader even into a battle where the, stack, where the deck is stacked against them where defeat looks to be more than inevitability than victory. But if the leader is brave, men will follow, but they'll shun a coward. Following Jesus, understand this, following Jesus when it's difficult, not when it's easy, but when it's difficult, when it costs you something, will, I promise, garner you the admiration and loyalty of those entrusted to your care. Your kids will respect you when they see you make decisions to follow Jesus that have consequences. It might not be easy, it might be difficult, it might be hard, but your kids will respect you and your wife will admire you. Paul, none of these things move me. How was he able to have such a perspective? Notice, two things kind of contribute to this. He says that he did not count his life dear to himself. It's a reality that selfishness is the singular thing that limits most men in truly following Jesus. Humility is a requirement You know, this is why Paul is constantly reiterating over and over and over again the fact that his life was no longer his own. Like he says over and over and over again, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The old man has passed away. All things are new. Constantly, Paul is saying, self is dead. And because it was dead, because his life was no longer his own, self could no longer dominate 
his life. He was able to break free from selfish intention. Self didn't even have a platform of influence. Also notice that in addition to not counting his life dear to himself, Paul's chief focus as a result was simply to finish his race with joy and finish the ministry he had received from the Lord. More than everything else in his life, Paul wanted more than all that the life he lived may testify specifically to the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. Paul could follow Jesus no matter where that led because he trusted that Jesus was not only the author, the starter, but the finisher of his faith. He could follow Jesus no matter where that led because his life was not his own and his aim was to finish the race before him. Also notice, in addition to following Jesus, in addition to serving Jesus, Paul, he represented Jesus by living a life above reproach. It's an essential component to being an effective shepherd. Look at verses 33 and 35. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities. And for those who are with me, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, while it's an error to extrapolate from this passage alone that a pastor shouldn't draw a salary. Sure, in Ephesus, Paul earned a living, but there are many other examples where Paul was supported financially by the church, enabling him to engage in full-time ministry. But regardless, in this instance, Paul is pointing to his experience in Ephesus to highlight an important lesson for these men. Here's the lesson. Avoid even the appearance of impropriety. In this particular situation, Paul was able to diffuse any accusations that he was out for money by earning a living apart from the church, whereby, as he lists, he was not only able to provide for his own necessities and the necessities of those who were with him, but had enough left over to even support the weak. Men, there's a truth that you would be wise to always remember. While your kids may not do all the things you say, (laughs) don't we all know that? They will do all the things you do. Children are imitators. They might not obey the things you say, but they will copy you. They will watch you, and they will copy you. I see this over and over and over again with my son Quincy. He copies me. And and because of that, the reality is I have to be very careful what I do. Because not only do my actions reflect me, but they dictate the actions of my son. I'll give you an example. This past Friday, Quincy and I decided we were going to do some yard work kind of some spring clean around the house, trimming the bushes, mowing the yard, edging and weed eating and blowing. And we went to task. It was a beautiful day on Friday. 
And so, being so gorgeous outside, I decided to take off my shirt, work in the yard. Well, Quincy absolutely had to do the same. Now, keep in mind, Jessica's out of town on our women's retreat. So it's just Quincy and I. And there are certain things that a, a woman notices or pays attention to that a man just by default doesn't. You might understand where this is going. So we worked all day in the yard. I mean all day, from about 10 to about 5. And even then, we decided we'd play some baseball in the backyard. So I'm throwing Quincy some pitches, and he's hitting and throwing them back. We're having a grand old time. And as we're there, I'm, I'm kinda, I kind of, it dawns on me. I'm like, man, my shoulders are a little pink. I probably should have put a little sunscreen on today. And then, the, like, the light bulb went off. If my shoulders are a little pink because I'm not wearing a shirt, and I looked, and oh man, Quincy's shoulders were just bright red. It was kind of a miserable experience, and one in which I have yet to confess to my wife, but will have to do it when she gets home later today. It's unavoidable. I mean, his shoulders are sunburned. But he copied me. I very rarely wear sunscreen. I should. My son should absolutely. But he does what I do. And as a result, if I had just tried to put sunscreen on him, he would not have listened to me. He copies me. For better or for worse, he copies me. Men, what you do speaks much more about your God than what you say. And beyond this, I hope you realize that the respect of your wife will always be based upon the things you do as opposed to the words that you say. And it's these realities, friend, that should spawn us to a holier lifestyle, a life above reproach. But also, consider the opportunity that this reality also affords. If you want your family, if you want your wife and your kids to follow Jesus, And men, I hope that's your biggest aim, that your kids would be disciples of Jesus. If you want them to follow Jesus, the best thing that you can do for them, the best thing you can do to influence them is to follow Jesus yourself because they will copy you. So we have Paul's edict and then his example. Finally, look at Paul's exhortation to these men beginning in verse 32. He says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This word commend, I commend you, is the Greek compound word para to meaning. It literally means to set aside with or alongside. In English, the word commend would probably be better translated to commit to one's charge. Notice, for these men to fulfill their heavenly calling, to be elders, for us to fulfill our heavenly calling, to be men, to be shepherds of our family, Paul commits us and them to the care of two things. He's saying there's two things essential. If you're to fulfill this calling, he commends them, commits them to the care, to the charge of God and the word of his grace. In essence, Paul is saying the only way that we can be successful pastors 
is to be committed, to be all in for God and to be all in to his word, that we should stay close to God and abide in his grace by abiding in his word. Men, when you focus on these two things, when you place the glory of God and the examination of his word, when you cherish his word and you're in his word, you're studying his word, when you're doing these things, Paul says that you will be built up. In the Greek, the word means to build upon. It gives the idea of strength, of growth. He's saying to grow in the role. Be committed to God and his word. You'll be built up, you'll be strengthened, and you'll be given an inheritance. An inheritance. Not only an inheritance for eternity, which is glorious in and of itself, but is there any greater inheritance you can give to your children, to your grandchildren, than a life lived committed to Jesus, an example of a life lived committed to Jesus? Is there any better inheritance than a spiritual one? There's a death tax that will take half of your physical inheritance. But they can't touch the spiritual one you can leave behind. Be committed to God and be committed to his word. In conclusion, when the day comes, when you have to give your own parting words, what do you want to say? Like, do you want to be that moment when you're laying on that bed surrounded by your friends and your family members, your kids and your wife? Do you want it, that moment to be filled with regret, remorse, apologies, confession, knowing that your life was dominated by trivial things that didn't matter and only served to distract you from the things that do? Or do you want that moment to be a time of glorious reflection where you can say to the people God entrusted to your care, you know in what manner I have always lived among you above reproach, that I cared for the weak and served my Lord with all humility, that as a shepherd, I was committed to feeding and leading and protecting my family that I steadfastly followed Jesus no matter where that led. I want those to be my parting words. When the day comes, when your life is eulogized by others, by those entrusted to your care, what will your loved ones say? <laughs> it's my prayer that I will be remembered as a man who counted not his life dear to himself but whose life served to testify to the world as to the gospel of the grace of God. More than all else, when my time on this earth is evaluated, I pray my children, the people God has entrusted to my care to shepherd, even my church, that they will be able to say with confidence, with surety, that their dad or their pastor finished his race with joy, fulfilling the ministry he had received from Jesus. Ladies, I told you this morning 
was a message for men who love Jesus and for women who love men that do. And so I want to provide you a bit of exhortation. If you've yet to marry, use this as a profile for the man God wants in your life. Don't just look for a, a husband or a potential father, but look for a man who will follow Jesus and serve Jesus no matter what, who counts his life not dear to himself, who wants to be a shepherd, who wants to lead and guide and protect and cherish. God desires nothing less for you. And maybe this morning, maybe you're a wife who's married to a man derelict in his duties. If that's you, and as you're hearing this sermon and your heart is weighed in grief, don't nag that man. You can't make him into anything. Love him and submit to him, but above all else, pray for him that he will man up, that God will grip his life, that he will embrace the role he has been ordained by God to fill. Pray for a miracle. And finally, if you want to be the man that God has called you to be, if you want to be a shepherd who cares for his family by protecting them, who loves his family by serving them, who leads his family by following Jesus and who follows Jesus by living a life above reproach, remember that you cannot do this on your own and your own strength and your own ability, that you need to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who has ordained you to fill the role is the same Spirit who will equip you to fulfill the role. No that you must be committed both to God and to the word of his grace. Amen? Amen. So, Father.